Welcome to the Digital Science Podcast. In this episode, we'll be speaking to authors featured in this year's Altmetric Top 100, the annual list highlighting the research that has most captured the public's imagination throughout 2018. Altmetric is a data science company that tracks conversations around research happening online. These data help researchers, publishers, institutions, and funders to better understand the real-world impacts of the research they do and support. Since 2013, Altmetric has compiled each year's most talked about research into a top 100 list that showcases research that's often timely, influential, comical, or a combination of all three. This year's top 100 list features a wide variety of research from all corners of the globe. In this episode, we've been fortunate enough to talk to an author of the number one article of 2018, as well as authors of other top 100 articles that focus on recent hot topics like fake news, climate change, and surprising truths about the effects of alcohol. From Digital Science, I'm Cameron Shepard. The number one article of 2018, published in New England Journal of Medicine, looked at mortality rates resulting from Hurricane Maria, a powerful storm that overtook Puerto Rico in September 2017. The study proposes a new way of calculating mortality rates in the absence of reliable government data. We spoke with author Dr. Sachit Balsari, a researcher and doctor at Harvard University, to learn more about the importance of this work. Sachit, tell us a bit about your research and also a bit about the social context that led to this article. Um, you know, as, as the months were rolling by after the hurricane, uh, colleagues from Puerto Rico reached out to us. They were very concerned that the official death counts seemed to be very low uh, compared to what they were seeing in their communities. And uh, we know from previous disasters that the estimation of mortality in the wake of disasters can be uh, very difficult, largely because um, normal mechanisms of uh, counting deaths are often disrupted after disasters. Um, or sometimes they just don't exist to begin with in, in many parts of the world. And that was really the context and, and the purpose of us going in saying, look, we, we know how to do this. There is literature that, that supports robust methodology to do this quickly. And, and can we apply some new geospatial tools and technology available in 2017, 2018 to do this right. So you kind of touched on it in your previous answer, but why is it important to study mortality rates? So, so you want to calculate mortality for, for a number of reasons, uh, primarily for the communities. Uh, they, uh, for closure, they would like to both know and, and know that society acknowledges that these deaths occurred in the first place. Um, it's also important to know not just how many died, but what they are dying from or what they died of. In Maria, for example, we have learned, and as we have been since Katrina, and we saw this in Sandy as well, that what happens in uh, highly industrialized uh, nations and urban centers uh, like ours is that you know, life expectancy is longer, but it also means that people are dependent on um, electricity for their medical needs. And we would only know all this from, from studying what people are dying from, what they continue to die from, uh, and what they continue to suffer from. And how did you go about calculating these mortality rates? Is there something different about your method uh, compared to previous studies? 
traditionally, um, you know, you would sort of do a two-stage uh, cluster sampling where because you cannot knock on every household in the entire region that you want to study, you figure out how you are going to sample uh, pockets uh, that are very different from each other so that you can capture all kinds of variation in the population and then sample folks from within those pockets. Uh, we were able to introduce uh, new geospatial layers that for this sort of component of random sampling, uh, we were able to uh, use maps of um, household structures and have the computer randomize households for us to go to. Uh, similar methodologies in the last couple of years would still generate random points, and sometimes those points would land up um, in a courtyard or on top of a water tank or on top of a hill, and until you went there, you didn't really know that it wasn't a household structure. But we were able to use these crowdsource maps that are now frequently available in disasters around the world um, called OpenStreetMaps, uh, which are fairly accurate and up-to-date when available. Uh, which just allowed us to save some time. Can you talk a bit more about the, the technology and how I guess that's changed over the past 10 years? It seems to have a huge effect. Yeah, yeah. No, um, you know, the whole field of sort of crisis mapping and, and crowdsourcing information during disasters has evolved so rapidly over the last 10, 15 years um, into the go-to place during uh, disaster response. Haiti was, was pivotal where um, many international agencies and players, largely um, initially based out of uh, Boston, used the Ushahidi platform working closely with international agencies and uh, with um, the U.S. military at that point to allow Haitians to use their phones to uh, map their needs on a platform that uh, response agencies could monitor. Fast forward a few years, mapping technologies became better. It was easier to geotag, geolocate places. Our smartphones became smarter, and you could, you know, very easily start getting GPS coordinates on these handheld devices where you didn't necessarily need um, additional devices. Uh, ubiquity of, of these digital global maps being available and them opening up their APIs. Um, you had other initiatives like the OpenStreetMap project, which actually lets people um, map their own uh, streets, literally, and uh, to, to a level of precision that we didn't have before. The reaction uh, to your research has been uh, huge. Um, did you get support from the publisher or your institutions help boost that? Or is this just something that grew organically um, and uh, was engaging a bigger audience, something you were actively looking to achieve? Um, we were hoping that, that the study would meet the right audience and have impact, especially given the massive difference in, in the official count and what we were finding. Um, but the, the media response that we saw was, was very organic. Uh, I mean, it helped that, you know, the publication was um, in a high-impact medical journal to begin with, supported by, uh, you know, teams, academic teams, both uh, from Boston and Puerto Rico. You know, translational research is, is 
uh, sort of the dream of, 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 of most uh, scientists, and it takes a while for one to see impact from from their research, uh, and the time frame is usually not not 24 hours. So um, I think we we were uh, certainly pleasantly surprised, uh, but also grateful to to the tremendous uh, support from from the media. And um, you, you have cover this, I think, a fair bit, but um, how do the outcomes of the study impact the field of public health at large? I, I think uh, there is growing recognition now that uh, these kinds of studies play a vital role in post-disaster assessments. While, of course, we should wait for um, you know death registry counts to be updated, um, for other proxy indicators uh, to be available, say admission rates and death rates from hospitals and so on and so forth, there is a role for household-based surveys for these quick needs assessments to be done after disasters, which, you know, we do these kinds of surveys routinely internationally in disasters, but I think there is an opportunity here for uh, even the U.S. to realize that that incorporating these kinds of studies in official FEMA response may actually prove to be very helpful. Many have pointed to the power of Hurricane Maria as proof of the dangers of climate change in the Anthropocene the epoch in which human actions have altered the world's geology and ecosystems. The Anthropocene is a topic that features heavily in this year's Top 100. We spoke to authors whose work has seen a lot of attention this year for its role in highlighting the effects of humankind on the planet. Dr. Ron Milo is part of a team that set out to calculate the biomass of all living beings on Earth, plants, plankton, animals and humans alike. His study, which appears at number 10 of the Altmetric Top 100, was published in Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences earlier this year. So, uh, Ron, tell us a bit about your research. Uh, why did you decide to quantify the biomass of all life on Earth? So it's kind of funny because we started with a different question, uh, which is, uh, what is the most abundant protein on Earth? And in order to answer that question, we had to go, and I was asking the students involved to go and search in the literature the biomass of different uh, types of animals and organisms and surprisingly came back and said you know there isn't a good repository that lists that not in Encyclopedia Britannica or in Wikipedia or in any textbook uh, which really led us to start this long journey and he was really a hero uh, following on that for several pretty hard years. And how did the results, the outcomes of the study, impact environmental science um, at large? We could start from the most basic question, that is, uh, which organisms dominate the planet in terms of mass? And uh, when I asked that question in almost any uh, biology, environmental or other department, uh, say, is it plants, bacteria, fungi, animals? Uh, most people uh, always vote for bacteria, and we actually found that bacteria are about 10%, uh, whereas plants are about 90%. So plants by far dominate the biosphere in terms of their biomass. And the reaction to your article has been huge. Um, did you get support? Uh, did your institution help boost it? Or was it something that just grew organically when you released your uh, research into the media landscape? So there was a press release that came from the Weizmann Institute where we did this research in Israel. Uh, and I think that was very useful uh, to bring the message out. But then the reception was definitely more than I expected. They 
the paper that depart, that appeared, the coverage that appeared in, on The Guardian, which I, I think they did a fantastic job, had more than like 200,000 shares uh, among the different uh, social networks, which was really quite uh, surprising and, and made us happy. And do you think, um, going back to the 80-fold um, increase in uh, of life in, in terrestrial areas, do you think that this played a part in understanding the value of, say, plant life in, in the public eye? Do you think that they, that they uh, sort of grabbed hold of that idea? Because we always talk about trees and their value um, in, in our, um, our ecosystems and in our climate. What grabbed the attention of people even more is this interesting finding about the impact of humanity. Uh, looking, for example at the current state of wild animals versus domesticated animals, uh, what we found is that uh, there's about 20-fold, uh, 20 times more biomass of domesticated animals, mostly uh, cows, than of all mammals combined, meaning all the rhinos and giraffes and lions and even whales and dolphins combined. And I think this was uh, uh, kind of shocking, but also an important realization to many people on the impact that humanity already has on the planet and, and this new geological era that is termed the Anthropocene, the age of humanity. And um, just going back to that uh, question, because um, I think this is a really interesting part of the, the, the research. Um, in, in terms of uh, domesticated animals, you, you could, uh, obviously we tie those um, to humans, but is there, have you seen or have come across uh, any other research uh, through your colleagues or yourself that talks about losing diversity of creatures on planet Earth and that impact on the ecosystems um, on, on our planet? Yes, yeah, so, so, so there's definitely many other supporting evidence discussing a kind of a sixth ex extinction, uh, which usually happens, you know, once every hundred million years or so. So something that is uh, very, very rare, very special, and very apocalyptic, if you want, uh, about the what happens to the biodiversity. But not only the biodiversity, which is the uh, aspect usually emphasized, but where it really took it to the uh, quantitative aspect that. Uh, uh, discuss also the abundance. So it's one thing to talk about the species, you know, some species that are being lost, which is a big loss for humanity. But I think the fact that there's a fall in populations, which is often more than 50% due to humanity, uh, I think that's very, very worrying. And are there any tips you'd give other researchers looking to get attention for their work? It would be pretty useful to listen to your voice, your inner voice, and Surely in this case, I could say it turned out really to the best uh, that we kept on following on that, did it as deep as we could, and the reception uh, was really rewarding. Next, we caught up with Dr. Terry Hughes, a researcher who has had two papers on coral reefs appear in this year's Top 100. We learned about the importance of researcher-led outreach to shine a light on serious issues like coral reef bleaching and its effects on the communities reliant on those ecosystems. So Terry, you've got more than one paper in the top 100 this year. Um, can you tell us a bit about the research that underpins each of your papers and what drew you uh, originally to studying cor coral reefs? Well, I've been privileged to study coral reefs all of my career. So I first saw coral reefs in the Caribbean when I was about 20 years old. And uh, they're fascinating ecosystems. Uh, 
we clearly need to know as much as we can about them to help manage them better because coral reefs are very vulnerable ecosystems to climate change in particular. So I tell my students there's never been a greater need for coral reef science uh, and that urgency is going up as we see more and more of these coral bleaching events due to global warming. And the reaction to your article has been huge. Um, do you Did you get any support to put that into the media landscape or is it just something that grew organically? Climate change this year has just been a huge news story. So ma- many of the articles I've seen in the media through the year about the California fires or the fires in Europe during the heat wave in, in June, July, um, and the IPCC report that came out about a month ago. Ma- many of those newer stories ma- made the link to the issue of climate change impacting coral reefs. Um, so, yeah, it just kept accumulating um, during the year. So it was quite organic. And uh, did you have any major pieces of coverage that you were you were particularly proud of, that uh, you felt had a real impact on maybe even something like policy? Uh, yes, there was a policy impact. So in, in Australia, uh, because of the publicity around the severity of the impact of bleaching and global warming on the Great Barrier, the Australian government has recently come up with uh, what they're calling a rescue package, which was uh, nearly $500 million of government investment in um, attempting to address the issue of of climate change. I think our paper is also putting some pressure on the Australian government to do more about uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Um, Australia's emissions, unfortunately, are still rising. And I think more and more people, uh, more and more voters, are concerned about the inadequate climate and energy policy that the current Australian government has. And, and what kind can, can people like myself, other citizens, I guess, living in coastal towns, what, what can they do? Well, I think it needs to be both a bottom-up approach where individuals and households um, do what they can to reduce their their carbon footprint. So in Australia, many households, about 30% of them, have now installed solar panels on on their homes. Um, And that's transforming uh, energy usage in in Australia away from fossil fuels towards more and more uh, renewable energy. But the the process also has to be top-down. And we now have a framework, the COP21 Paris Agreement, with the 1.5 to 2 degrees centigrade global average warming targets. Um, so for the first time, we've, we've, we do have a now a, a policy framework, if you like, for reducing global emissions. And uh, the most recent IPCC report emphasised we need to get on with that very smartly. Fake news is a concept that's dominated much of the media landscape in the past few years. We spoke to authors of two top 100 papers on misinformation to learn more about their research behind the scenes. First, we spoke with Sanana Rao, a professor at MIT and author of The Spread of True and False News Online, published in Science earlier this year and appearing at the number two slot in this year's top 100. Sinan, tell us a bit about the research and social context that led to this article. Yeah, so uh, we started studying the spread of false news online before it was really a major media concern. 
we were seeing misinformation spreading on Twitter during the Boston Marathon bombing, which hit very close to home for us because uh, we work in, in Cambridge at MIT. Uh, and so we decided to start uh, looking into the spread of misinformation on Twitter um, well before it became a media subject. Uh, and then as we started researching it, uh, we worked with Twitter to analyze uh, all of the true and false verified news stories that spread on Twitter from its inception in 2006 to uh, 2017, so 11 years of data. And we had access to the full historical archive of Twitter data. Uh, and we were able to catalog how true and false news uh, was spreading online and what the differences were between the spread and tr of true and false news online. You know, this at the time that it was published, uh, several months ago now, it was the largest ever longitudinal study of the spread of false news online. And when we compared the spread of false news to the spread of true news, we found that false news diffused farther, faster, deeper, and more broadly than the truth in every category of information that we studied, uh, sometimes by an order of magnitude. We found that false political news was uh, diffusing further, faster, deeper, and more broadly than any other category of false news. Uh, and we also looked at why this was happening. Uh, and we found essentially that we thought at first that maybe false news spreaders were different. Maybe people who were spreading false news had more followers or they followed more people or they were more active on Twitter or had been on Twitter longer. And we checked all those things, we found the opposite was true. In fact, false news spreaders were, uh, had fewer followers, followed fewer people, were less active, less often verified, and so on. And so false news was spreading this much farther, faster, deeper, and more broadly than the truth, despite all of these characteristics, not because of them. We also looked at the role of bots, software automated uh, agents, in spreading false news. And we found that indeed, Bots were accelerating the spread of false news, but they were accelerating the spread of true news at approximately the same rate. Uh, so bots couldn't explain the differential diffusion of falsity compared to the truth online. And what do you think that says about our behavior? Is it that we, we enjoy or, I guess, are more satisfied by sensationalist um, false news or, you know, uh, I guess, truth that's been kind of twisted? Um, as opposed to cool, calm, collected discourse about uh, a complex problem? Yes, in fact, that's exactly what we found. So when we found that false news spreaders uh, had fewer followers and followed fewer people and so on, we had to look for alternative explanations for why false news was spreading. So we read the literature, and what we found was that uh, there is a lot of evidence in uh, cognitive science that human attention is drawn to things that are novel. So when, uh, and, and you can see this evidence everywhere from uh, visual cortex studies of where our eyes are drawn to, uh, all the way through to uh, an understanding of what people like to read, what type of news they are, uh, sort of their attention is drawn to, uh, and we're drawn to novelty. Uh, 
in addition, if you read the sociology literature, it shows uh, lots of evidence that um, we gain in status when we share novel information because it looks to our friends like we are, quote unquote, in the know or have access to inside information. And so we gain in status when we share it. So what we did was we looked at the novelty of false news compared to true news using information theoretic measures. We measured the incoming tweets of true and false news and compared that to the history of what each of the recipients of this news had seen in the past 60 days on Twitter prior to seeing this true or false news. And indeed, we found that false news was significantly more novel than the truth, which is not surprising because it's unconstrained by reality. It's completely made up. Um, then we checked the replies to true and false tweets to examine their sentiment, and we found that people replying to false tweets were much more surprised by the information, which corroborated this novelty hypothesis. So false news is more salacious, more surprising, more uh, sort of uh, emotionally activating, and therefore our attention is drawn to it and we share it more. I doubt it is, but is the spread of false news here to stay, or do you think this trend will pass? False news is not new. There's always been false rumors, propaganda, misinformation. In fact, I think the first time the phrase false news was ever used was in a Harper's Magazine article way back in 1923. So it's not a new concept. But what's new today is the speed, breadth, and depth with which information can spread so quickly online and the importance of the speed breadth and depth with which this information spreads today is that it can spread very fast and affect decisions before there's a chance to fact check and correct uh, this type of misinformation spread and for the average citizen um, what would you tell them about your work and uh, about maybe tips for how they ingest the news and, and information uh, we certainly have to be a lot more vigilant. Uh, there are lots of uh, important societal consequences to the spread of falsity. Uh, clearly, they can disrupt democracies. Uh, they can disrupt our economies. So, for instance, there's a story uh, in 2013, Syrian hackers hacked the AP News uh, Twitter handle and put out a tweet that said Barack Obama had been injured in a explosion uh, at the White House and the stock market lost $140 billion in equity value in a single day because of that one false tweet. And uh, it certainly can affect first responders responding to terrorist attacks or natural disasters. So there's a lot of potential negative consequences. We have to be a lot more discerning. We have to be uh, thinking about the veracity of the information we're consuming. We have to be thinking about getting our news from trusted sources uh, and, and really paying attention to how falsity can uh, disrupt our lives, our democracies, our economies, even our public health. False news about uh, vaccines, false news about different ways to deal with, um, with disease uh, can really affect our health, our kids' health. There's a story in South Africa, obviously, that uh, Thabo Mbeki, the former prime minister, and his, uh, his minister of health were saying that you can solve 
or get rid of your HIV by bathing in olive oil and lemon. And those kinds of misinformation can lead to people dying from HIV and other types of diseases. So there's a lot of potential negative consequences. We have to be more vigilant. Next, we chatted with David Bronyatowski, professor at George Washington University and author of a paper on Twitter bots, Russian trolls, and vaccine debates online, which appears at number 18 in the Altmetric Top 100. Can you tell us a bit about your research that led to this article? Basically, uh, we started out uh, with a grant that was funded by the National Institutes of Health. And this particular grant was to help us understand rationales for vaccine refusal. Uh, how they are spread around the country, and how they differ uh, by different locations and different population groups. So, for example, we might expect that people in uh, one part of the country might uh, accept or refuse vaccines uh, for different reasons, uh, some of which may be regional. Um, and uh, what we what we really wanted to do was get a sense of, of people's reasons and, and, and uh, their underlying uh, rationales so that we could better communicate with them and better help people to understand the risks and benefits associated with vaccination, um, you know, do some sort of targeted and tailored communication. Uh, and as we were doing that analysis, one of the things that quickly became clear was that social media had a much larger uh, presence of anti-vaccine messages, especially when we compared it to information that we saw from best-of-breed social uh, science surveys, uh, such as uh, generated by the Pew Center or by some of our academic colleagues, all of these surveys seem to suggest pretty strongly that the vast majority of people find vaccines safe and effective. Um, but if you look on social media, you see a large number of retweets um, and essentially uh, uh, a lot of a lot of messages indicating not only distrust but really anti-vaccine sentiment, and we wanted to understand uh, the the nature of this discrepancy and why there was a discrepancy, and that got us into looking uh, into uh, the sorts of actors that we really tend to find uniquely on social media, namely bots and trolls. Is this a new phenomenon, or something like this occurred um, in 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 our history before, but in a different form? And uh, do you think that this is a trend, or is it here to stay? Yeah. So, um, all the great questions. I mean, essentially, what what inspired us to conduct this particular study was this this discrepancy that we saw between uh, what was on social media and what we saw in uh, survey data. And we, we are trying to understand how these two different sources can be used to, um, to, to help one another. Um, and uh, so then the question of, you know, is it a new, uh, a new phenomenon? Absolutely not. Um, misinformation is as old as information. In fact, uh, you know, you, you certainly have uh, ancient philosophers talking about misinformation and, and, and targeted misinformation. Um, so I don't believe that uh, the spread of false news is by any means a trend that will pass. But I do think that we are still figuring out as a society how to use social media in a responsible way. And so uh, just as with any new technological development, we had to learn how to use it uh, and how to determine what is credible and to separate what is credible from what is not credible, and to separate, uh, you know, what is a meaningful communication from, from what uh, is is perhaps just noise. I think we're we're at a point in in history right now where 
social media is uh, is something where we're trying to figure out how to use it and how to use it appropriately. And uh, and th these are these are sort of growing pains uh, with some uh, malicious actors using social media to advance their own agendas. Uh, uh, with those agendas. Uh, perhaps not necessarily even directly related to vaccination. And what do you think the implications of your research are for the average person who reads the news online or follows social media? Well, I think one, are, one of the things that our research does is it emphasizes uh, that you, you, you cannot necessarily assume that what you see on social media uh, is sincerely motivated. If you see a message that seems to be attacking uh, vaccines, it may be that the message is not really about vaccines. It may be that the person uh, or the algorithm posting that message is trying to do any one of a number of things, uh, either selling an alternative product or uh, trying to simply drive up number of clicks for ad revenue uh, or you know, in the case of the uh, Russian trolls that we found, uh, trying to foment discord for political purposes. There are a lot of different reasons why somebody may be posting a message that seems to oppose or, or support vaccination. And uh, those reasons may not actually have very much to do with vaccination in and of themselves. And the reaction to your article and your, your work has been huge. Um, did you get support from the publisher and your institution to help boost that? Or was it something that grew organically um, and was engaging a broader audience, something that you were actively looking to achieve? We think these results are important, and we absolutely uh, wanted to engage a broader audience beyond simply uh, the, the traditional academic community. And the reason why is, as I said, I believe we're at a point in history where we are learning how to use social media responsibly and to really figure out how to communicate the bottom line and understand the bottom line of any given communication. So absolutely, we were trying to engage a broader audience because we think it's important to educate people uh, about uh, about uh, how they can be appropriate consumers of social media. Uh, now, that being said, we absolutely did, yes, get support from uh, both the publisher and from George Washington University. Um, George Washington University was instrumental in, uh, in helping us to uh, disseminate uh, our, our findings uh, to the press. Um, and helping us to formulate uh, those findings in a way that uh, really uh, communicated uh, why this work was important. And the uh, publisher, uh, the American Journal of Public Health, uh, was, was also instrumental. Uh, one of the things that they did early on was they decided to make this article open access. Uh, which means anybody had access to it. It was not. It was not behind a paywall, and that's something that we we very much appreciate and 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 very much support because what it essentially does um, is it allows uh, what we feel to be a very important finding to be accessible uh, to anyone, independent of where they stand on vaccines. Uh, they can read our article, and you know they can draw their own conclusions. Uh, you know, obviously, we believe that um, that our article is. Uh, uh, is is informative and is uh, you know has 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 an important role to play in this debate, and we want that uh, that information to be widely available to to the public uh, as a service. And so we we absolutely do um, do appreciate the support from both both uh, the publisher and and our institutions. Do you think there was any, or did you find any specific coverage across the media landscape that that really stood out for you? 
this is one of those those areas where I, I found that the uh, role of, of altmetric was actually very instrumental uh, because it serves essentially as an aggregator. And one of the things that I was really amazed by was the diversity of sources that picked up on this article. Uh, obviously, uh, a number of mainstream news sources. I was especially surprised, uh, and you know, uh, pleasantly so, by by how much this article was picked up in the international press and especially the European press. Uh, and I think that obviously has something to do with the, the nature of its contents and the uh, unfortunate measles outbreak that's been spreading uh, through Europe uh, at the time. Obviously, there's no way uh, we could have known that that would be the case. But but I'm glad that we're we're uh, we're having uh, relevant uh, ability to communicate to relevant audiences. Uh, obviously, it's also been picked up in the in the American press and and, and the Canadian press. Um, uh, we, we've seen that the article was also widely shared on Twitter um, and other social media platforms such as Reddit. Uh, it was mentioned on Wikipedia, it was mentioned on Facebook and Google+. Uh, and, and I feel like that, uh, you know, it's really not that there's one particular source or, or, or set of coverage that we feel stood out, but rather that the wide scope of the coverage was something that we were very um, pleasantly surprised to see. Um, one of the things I did want to mention uh, for any particular source is that this article uh, became a, a front page news story, story in The Guardian, which is one of the leading uh, British newspapers. And uh, I think that had a lot to do with um, making this article salient in the European press. A familiar theme has appeared once again on this year's top 100 list, humankind's eating and drinking habits. We spoke with Emanuela Gakiro, a professor at the University of Washington in Seattle, to learn more about her paper that's receiving a lot of attention due to the inconvenient truth it includes. That is, the only healthy amount of alcohol one can drink is no alcohol at all. And could you talk a little bit about the, the main results um, of your, your study? Sure. So uh, there were a lot of results because we measure a lot of things. Some of the major findings were that globally there are about 3 million deaths per year associated with alcohol use. Um, and also the, the finding that got the most attention was that we have analyzed all the data to look at what is the level of alcohol consumption that is associated with the lowest amount of health loss around the world. And that level of consumption has turned out to be zero. And that has surprised a lot of people around the world who have who may have previously thought that at low levels of consumption, there's a health benefit. Emanuele, could you tell us a bit about the research that led to the publication of this article? So this article is a product of a much larger Study, the Global Burden of Disease Study, and the place where I work, the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, is the coordinating center for this large global collaboration. And specifically what we looked at in this article was the role of alcohol and its contribution to health loss. But as part of the Global Burden of Disease, we explored 80 different risk factors and we look at 300 different diseases. And how do the outcomes of this study impact public health um, as a discipline? 
Well, we think that the global burden of disease provides the most timely and accurate information on what makes people sick and what people die from around the world, but also the relative information about different behaviors and risk factors. So specifically for this study, um, we hope that people will note the health loss associated with alcohol use around the world and the fact that it impacts young adults severely. Do you think people will change their behaviors as a result or, or public health um, uh, services will change their information? To people understanding that drinking is not healthy for you, I think it would be a great um, result of our study. We're not trying to get people to stop drinking altogether, but I think there's a difference in the mentality of thinking that having a drink or two a day is good for you versus knowing that the best level is zero, but an occasional drink is okay. Are there any tips you give to other researchers looking to get attention for their work? Um, any advice you have for making sure the right people see it? Um, I guess the, my advice would be to focus on important topics that matter because it seems like if you work on things that matter to people, then um, the work gets attention. And always do good work because at the end of the day, we need better evidence and we need our public health policies to be based on good, solid analysis. Did you get any support um, for that to get that reach of this article or was it something that grew organically? To be honest, we were a little surprised at how much attention this article uh, received. Um, we thought it would be a topic of a lot of interest, but we had not anticipated this level of interest in it. Um, so we have a media team and we usually have a media package associated with our major publications and our team did what we normally do. I think the level of attention that the article received was something that grew organically and it probably relates to the fact that alcohol is a central part of many cultural aspects in many countries and people paid a lot of attention to it um, also because it, I, I imagine there is a large proportion of the population that actually enjoys consuming alcohol. That's all we've got time for today. Thanks to all of the top 100 authors who joined us for an interview. You can check out the full list of the top 100 for yourself at altmetric.com top 100. You'll find additional information on each article that's featured in this year's list if you follow that link. For those of you that don't know, Digital Science is a technology company working to make research more efficient. We invest in, nurture and support innovative businesses and technologies that make all parts of the research process more open and effective. We believe that together we can help researchers make a difference. Make sure you follow us on Twitter at DigitalSci and subscribe to the Digital Science podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud for future interviews, our latest news and much more.